now I want to take a time to talk about um, my show sponsor, which is Live to Fight Design. Uh, if you checked out the episode with Sean Clemens, he's the owner of uh, Live to Fight Design. And uh, what he makes is uh, banners, fight banners for fighters and also gyms, fight gyms. And uh, I have a promo code with Live to Fight Design, which is Todd Atkins, my first name, T-O-D-D. Last name Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S, all together. So if you use my promo code, you get $20 off your order. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, get a pretty good banner made for yourself. High quality and uh, ships them out pretty fast. So, you know, I appreciate him. Take He's the first guy who's taking interest in sponsoring this show. And uh, I'm proud to have someone who's involved in the fight game rather than someone who's not sponsoring the show. So check out live to fight design so live and then the number two so live to fight design on instagram that's where you could contact sean clemens if you have interest in purchasing a banner from him and if you use my promo code you get 20 dollars off the order so please support uh, live to fight design and hope you enjoy this episode Right, so this is Todd Atkins here, and I'm with Miguel Iterati, and we're going to talk about one FC's debut in Denver, Colorado, U.S. debut, and kind of what we took away from it and kind of the challenges they're going to face in trying to compete with the UFC in the U.S. So before we start, as always, check out our sponsor, Live to Fight Design. If you use my promo code, Todd Atkins, you can get 20% off your order. They make fight banners and gym banners. So check them out on Instagram at Live to Fight Design. Now, Miguel, I want to ask you, because obviously you've been involved with Bodog TV. You know, y'all did a, a bunch of episodes. So let's kind of talk about, well, let's let's just talk about your overall impressions of, of the one uh, debut first, and then we'll go to there. Okay, I think, you know, the MMA media in this country is very skewed for the UFC. Um, so they didn't get as much attention as I think they could have, you know, or should have. Um, interestingly, I think, you know, their presence is should ultimately be weighed as more of a threat to the UFC. I'm not sure it's a major threat, but should be weighed more as a, of a threat to the UFC than anything, you know, Bellator and the PFL may be planning to do together with or without Nganu or, you know, however all that plays out, I don't think, you know, um, that you they have a long-term plan. I think, you know, one does. And th that's what made it interesting. They put their flag in, in the United States, um, you know, after many, many years of operating in Asia. And they showed a pretty mature show with good talent. Um, definitely a different style and approach to the martial arts game than the UFC. And, uh, you know, in that respect, I think that they're, you know, philosophically, they're going to be okay with the hardcores and stuff. I don't know how, you know, uh, how much legs they have to go up against the UFC. It's still a mountain. Now, one thing I want to touch on, because you just brought this up, and we talked about this actually last episode, is that they didn't really have a lot of presence as far as going around doing interviews and having their fighters out there doing a lot on social media and whatnot. What do you make of that? Well, I noticed a few things. Um, I know, you know, you have Matt Hume, you have Rich Franklin, who, you know, 
At some point, you have to meet, you know, at some point, that, that's some of the management that on the state side, I thought that they would use. And they didn't really use them in the press. Um, they used Chowdhury, the, uh, you know, the owner. And I think that that's maybe a reaction to Dana's approach from the early days where they're going to have one face and one voice and it's going to come from him. He's extremely well-spoken in English. You know, I imagine that, you know, he dominates in, uh, you know, which of the foreign languages they run in primarily, you know, uh, the Chinese, I, you know, I'm sorry to be ignorant. I'm not sure, but um, the guy's a presence. The guy's a good front man. He speaks well um, philosophically about the sport. He knows what he's presenting. And, um, you know, he's clearly in it for the long term, especially if you, you know, hear rumors about their finances and stuff. Um, at the end of the day, they would have had to make an application for a boxing uh, you know, to a boxing commission in, in Colorado for um, a license to promote. And in there, there would have had to be some financial paperwork. I don't know, you know, what's enough or what the threshold is there, but you don't just get a promotion, you know, a promotional uh, license out of the blue. There is a process to it. So whatever is there, you know, they successfully ran, they put a, their flag in the ground in the States. And that's what I mean. The commissions could be, a giant hurdle for a lot of mid-level promotions or smaller, they, they're above that. They've managed it, and that's a good thing. You know, they have a different weigh-in process. They had to convince the commissions of that. They had to convince, you know, commissions. When was the last time you think there was that level of Muay Thai in Denver ever? You know, it's mm -hmm. like how, you know, and, and then grappling on top of it, like the boxing commission is going to be like, wait, hands off of that. I, they had to navigate all that, and they made it happen. And that's a strong point for them. Um, on the back end, they do come with a full office like the UFC, where that means that, you know, each individual fighter has a guy assigned to them that sends them their contract and their language. And that person's constantly communicating with them, getting camera people to them, um, you know, finding out information about, OK, you know, who's coming with you, corner men, making sure everybody's visas and everything was like getting everybody in the United States, you know, from Thailand and Singapore and, and out there and in Mexico and some of the other places. They, did, they didn't have a huge roster of American fighters. So there was a lot of structural paperwork that went into the show that they successfully pulled off. I didn't see any canceled fights, you know, of any of the major level. Yeah. And what did you make of how their stars kind of came off like Rod Tongue and uh, Stamp? Demetrius, you know. Yeah, you know, I think that right now they, I don't know if they're going to be happy with, but they, they, the little guys only get you so far. And, you know, that's unfortunate that the American public is that way, but it is. You know, if you look at the example of boxing, you know, in the post Mayweather years, Seems to be Canelo that's dominated, you know, the money coming in and took over for Mayweather. But the best boxer was actually a guy named Chocolatito from Nicaragua, who was 113 pounder, so nobody really cared about him. And he spent time, I think he got to American pay-per-view or HBO a couple of times and got a couple of minor paydays for what life is. You know what I mean? But here was the guy who was clearly the best boxer at the moment. Nobody cared. I had professional world champion professional boxers, 168 pounders said to me, you know, well, Canelo's the next big thing, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I said, what about Chocolatito? 
not interested. Not interested in the little guys. And I think, unfortunately, America is going to um, need a lot of education to break that. You know, the, to break that little stigma of ours where they like that. They like the big guys, et cetera, et cetera. Because one right now doesn't have the roster for that. Yeah, I think we're seeing that. Just to mention, now that you mentioned the Chocolatito, but I think we're seeing that with Inoue in Japan. You know, like Teddy Atlas on his show said, this guy's as good as anybody fighting. You know, yeah. his skills yeah, are right. unbelievable. But nobody cares. At least in the yeah. U.S., nobody cares. Japan, they care, but not in the U.S. Yeah, in Japan, Japan, you can be a certain level star, but unfortunately, and I'm not sure of how, you know, things are in the current state, but very siloed in Japan, right? So if you're an MMA fighter and a boxing fighter and stuff, and you break through and stuff, there's not a lot of camaraderie there. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is that Inoue is a guy who still mainly brings opponents into Japan and plays host rather than really exploring getting the biggest fights out there again you know all in, in more risky territory and that's not probably his decision the way Japan works right so uh, alas that's a problem but I agree with you Inoue could very well be the most skilled boxer on the planet right now yeah now I want you to kind of talk about from your experience you know, when people look at 1FC, and, and I was guilty of when I was younger because I didn't really understand the business, you know, but everyone looks at 1FC and they see the product. I mean, it's a good product, you know, and also it's a diverse product like we've talked about, which is something that appeals to us, you know, hardcore especially. But how hard is it for them? How hard is it going to be for them to compete with the UFC? And why do you think that is? Well, you know... The idea to me from the early days of MMA was, and you hear the old time fighters saying, you know, if you were on the UFC roster, they did five shows a year. You knew you were one of the best, you know, because of the five shows a year kind of thing. And when Zufa bought it, and you, and you always sort of saw the sport beyond the UFC, but the sport in general always migrated towards there being more and more shows. So that activity is what you have to monitor and, and be able to deliver, right? So the only one who is set to deliver weekly shows or content on multiple platforms is the UFC. And, you know, they went from, you know, Spike TV was their foot in the door. They were on television, right? At some point, they were doing shows on Fox. And that was with their deal with Fox Sports. And then they went, you know, with ESPN. And there have been other delivery platforms for other, you know, that's why they created things like the fight night shows and, you know, the uh, foreign shows as well. You know, the fight night in Brazil, the fight nights in Europe and things like that could all be because they're going to deliver them on a TV platform, whether you like it or not, so they can deliver it every week. And like, for example, Bellator, PFL, and, you know, to my understanding, I don't know how one's deal is, one, say potentially one ramps up and now it has enough content to deliver weekly, a, a new weekly fight show and all the supporting stuff. Is uh, their platform where they're distributing in the United States, which I think is Amazon Prime, right? Um, you know, is Amazon going to say, just bring on the content, and put it out there? Or are they going to say, well, you know, we we're kind of happy with, you know, two shows a month. I, I don't know if we got room for, you know, five shows a month. 
But that's what the UFC delivers, basically. You can see them every week, and if not, if it's not new content, it's a build-up show, you know, or whatever, and then they, there's all kinds of online media stuff, and that's what, where they break, you know, every company's back. Bellator is a non-starter. PFL, to me, is a non-starter as competition for them, for this very reason, is that there's a TV company that owns them and says, here's the season, you got shows, you know, for February, March, April, and then, you know, May and June will show reruns in, in their TV thinking, and then you're off, you know, three months until September again. You can't, you can't do that. You know, uh, the UFC understands that because what, what every week, by having weekly shows, what they can do is they can plug in and play with people. You know, freeze people out, you know it fast. But, you know, somebody gets injured, you like the guy, you want to see him, you can find a fight one, two weeks out there and, and use the same training camp. And, you know, Bellator doesn't have that flexibility. Your fight drops in Bellator, and it's, you know, the second show of a three-show set for, show set that they're doing with nothing announced in the future, and you have no idea when you're coming back to fight. So I, I one with, like I said, Rich Franklin, Matt Hume, a core of five people will understand that in, integrally, I think, that they have to have as many fights to offer as the UFC or they're going to be dealing with an inferior roster. And they, that's, you know, what they don't want to do. They don't want to be known as just a little guy division. Yeah, they're better at the lightweights, but to see the real heavyweights and stuff, because that's always going to carry cash with the American market. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that, we were going to touch on is how important it is for them to break into Vegas at some point and how hard will that be? Yeah. Like I said, um, they put their flag in the ground, but I do think that, you know, Colorado is not a major boxing commission, you know, and I do think that um, Vegas or, you know, I don't know, New Jersey still qualifies Vegas or California basically at this point. Um, if they want to duel with one of those commissions with all their different weight, you know, the way I remember the commission's situation is, is if they're friendly with you, you can, they work with you, they deal with you. But here's a situation where they are going to have to have a new weight, weigh in and weight system explained to them and weight classes are different. So. I could see a commission saying that nah, we're not going to deal with that and just shutting it down right away. No, you have to meet these standards that are the rules. And if you don't do that, no show, no promoter's license, no nothing. Now they've overcome that, that initial hurdle in Colorado, but in Vegas, Vegas becomes another interesting factor is that Vegas allows gambling, right? Nevada allows gambling. So at some point there's going to be a gambling control board that also takes interest in one's finances. And this would be a big hurdle for them, I think. Um, that, uh, And also a big hurdle that if they overcome it, it is a big signal that, you know, they're coming and that idea that their money's not kosher because it comes from overseas or whatever is probably going to be, a, a, you know, there's nobody going to be stricter than the gaming control board about money and where their money's coming from. They want to know. If you're bringing, you know, a show to to Vegas, if you're gonna, if you've got the juice to affect gambling on it and that sort of stuff, that's what Vegas has to worry about. They didn't have to deal with that in Colorado. 
So Vegas could literally look at the finances and go, man, you gave me a spreadsheet with, you know, incomplete, you know, or they could say, okay, stamp and go ahead. So it, it really is a shot in the dark. They say Vegas is Dana's town. Um, so, yeah, if they decided to play by the book, things could be very hard for one. You think that their finances would be an issue? I, I, I know I'm not qualified to answer that. You know, the thing is, is, there are rumors you've heard out there that they're, you know, 10 times further in the hole than the UFC ever was before the UFC righted it. And that, you know, they showed really no signs of stopping. Again, expanding to the UFC. I had a conversation within the last year of Matt Hume where they've been trying to produce movies and stuff, kind of like, you know, they, they have big ideas and big, you know, endeavor type of connections in Asia. So I can't say they, they, and, you know, when Matt Hume gets a salary, he's in America, he's going to have to report his salary and, and line items and stuff on taxes. But the main company has no reporting in the United States. So, you know, who knows what laws to begin with are they subject to, you know? But if he has a very successful business doing X, you know, which chip making or something like that, that the money just doesn't seem to go away and he just throws it all into one because it's his passion. And the books that, you know, at the end of the day, it's legal there. We really can't say anything about it. And I don't know anything about it other than that there's a negative vibe to it, that they uh, are in the hole and that they aren't making money and stuff. And uh, we'll see. We'll see about that. Like I said, you know, there are a few hundred shows into this. And this presentation was strong enough, especially with Chowdhury, you know, moving up front and being the front man for the company gives us an idea of what is coming from them and things. And that's a very organized presentation. I think um, they, they made, they made a good first step. Now I want to ask you about something because you were very involved back in this time, as far as when pride got to Vegas, did you hear anything about that or how they may have got over some of those hurdles? I believe by that point, um, this is just speculation, but I think the timetable will, will, will bear me out. I think they did two shows in Vegas. I think before they got to the first show, the writing was on the wall that the UFC was going to buy them. So I think, I think a lot of what we heard was that Pride did the shows in the U.S. kind of to go out with a bang as like a save a face saving kind of method me measure from you know their culture that they had to go out with something big and that's what it was and it, it, it that transcended what we saw in the ring too because um you know for the very last show uh, there was rumors that you know they they chartered two 747s and bought most of the staff over you know to see it and you know it was kind of like a goodbye kind of thing so once you're in Vegas and that's Dana and the Fertitas is town, um, yeah, I think that they were already uh, the writing was on the wall and it was already their company, so they had to sort of deal with, um, you know, they benefited from having the show in the U.S. It was worth more at the end when they bought it and they got it for cheap anyway, right? So, uh, yeah, I think that's what happened there. I, I don't think they had to deal with some of the hurdles, but they could have. Down to they were allowed to be in a ring, 
You know what I mean? That could even be a, a, a showstopper if you read some of the regulations, especially from the old days. Maybe there have been adjustments and things have happened. But some of them, if not, then you've got to apply for adjustments to the legal rules, which I think the UFC put in there has to be in a cage. MMA is in a cage. So you can't do a ring. Pride would have had to overcome that and get the ring approved on the side. Little hurdles like that start to add up after a while, and they're very taxing on an organization. So um, that's a game I think that we've seen actively played in this sport. And, uh, you know, like I said, that's why it's a good sign that one's overcome that to a certain level. And Vegas would be another level. Now, maybe talk about what you think. You know, no one can know. We don't have a crystal ball, but maybe like the short term, what you think we'll see from one as far as in the U.S. Well, I think that they're going to do another show this year. And, you know, if they if they have another successful show like the one they just pulled off, you know, maybe they'll announce a third show before the end of the year. And I think that they'll have some type of tournament or international type of structure where, you know, some of the Americans that excel on American television, you know, go get to fight in Asia and get to taste what a big show is in Asia. You know what I mean? Whereas a lot of it is like trying to get to Vegas or get to the big shows for the UFC. They're, they're going to offer their own flavor of that. Um, so we could, you know, we could see the U.S. And, and even the Latin market turn into a region for them that they're going to have to nurture, and that nurturing is probably, you know, for a roster that, like, they're going to need is probably, you know, three to five years. And make sure that you've got the output on, you know, where to put it on for people to see and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, they, they have to enact a, a real serious business plan. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm hoping for because uh, it's multifaceted. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's going to be interesting to see that. Let's touch on one other thing. Chachi's kind of taking some shots at the UFC. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I think that no matter, you know, at the end of the day, nobody's seen the books. Nobody knows for sure which company's bigger or whatever. They've always come across and said, oh, no, we're bigger. They have some people that'll say, no, if you look in, you know, in China and this, they may actually be a bigger, moving more money kind of company than even Endeavor or what the UFC's got going on. I don't know if I believe that. You know what I mean? I, I really don't know if I'm sure about that. Um, maybe if you pull in all this other guy's businesses and stuff, I, I'm, I'm not qualified to say any of that. But I think it's smart of, of Chowdhury to say very clearly in the media and stuff, it's the UFC and us. Nobody, they don't mention anybody else. Everybody else is below them and stuff. And they just by that, they've already executed, you know, a bucket list item, you know, become the other company and then take over from, you know, beat, beat the number one guy from the number two spot, right? But they got to be number two first. And referring to themselves that way makes sense. Yeah, but, you know, usually Dana White will respond to somebody who kind of like, tries to call them out, but it doesn't seem like UFC is paying any attention, or at least publicly, they're not giving them any attention. Yeah, they, they, I, I'm, I think that this WWE deal, even if it doesn't go any further than 
now. Like, and we've speculated that they might buy a boxing entity and really try to lock up combat sports. I do sincerely think that that is, you know, at least been talked about. Yeah, I, maybe they can't pull it off, but uh, they've they've tried. But even if it's just the WWE and UFC, now we're dealing with another stratosphere of media attention and outlets. You know, the WWE has some advantages over the UFC. Basically, history and pedigree, right? You know, they can refer to, you know, the next, I, I don't know, they're at WrestleMania 50 quite yet, but they got to be getting close. You know, and they're long-term, you watch... You know, their guys are very controlled. Like the UFC tries to control their guys. You know, a lot of that comes from the WWE contract. But you can't just get an interview for, with a WWE superstar, you know, just who's walking down the street and put a camera in his face. He'll turn you down because his contract could be an issue. You know, they're very controlled over all that. And the w, you know, the WWE showed the UFC some of that, and it works for them. So I think what we're going to see there is, then look, you know, when you see Randy Orton, a lot of the clips, you know, they, they start to repeat themselves. And one of them is, is, you know, the NFL's got a Super Bowl and we have WrestleMania. They always, and that's like the, what one is doing with the UFC, right? Always compare yourself to someone bigger. But they right. consider that's the competition, the Super Bowl. And if you could get into a situation where, you know, you do a Super Bowl twice a year in this sport or a Super Bowl level event twice a year in this sport, the revenue they're going to make is totally different. And that's what I think they're focused on. Because none of the news that's happening, you know, they're actually sitting above a roiling ocean of, of motion under them, you know, with what's going on everywhere. You know, even in boxing, you know, with Fury and Usyk not getting done, you know, Zingano going to be in the mix and this. Everything, they just are floating above it. But they really don't seem to care. And I think it's because they're going to do something much bigger. And they're not worried about, you know, one is, you know, one's next show scheduled for September or October, that time frame. Come on. They're going to do 20 shows by then. You know, how can they really honestly care or even consider it anything but a pesty fly? You know what I mean? At this point. Um, yeah, that's the main thing. They're not worried. The, the UFC, that's why the UFC is looking down at everybody. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Like, one had this show, and now all the momentum in the U.S. will die down by September, long before that, you know, because the UFC can just spam their content out every week, and yeah, that show will be forgotten next week. Yeah, and, you know, UFC's, I mean, uh, one's got a nice, uh, you know, social media stretch. You know, they put out a lot of clips and a lot of things like that. And uh, they're very, they very much capture what Chaudhry's tried to say, which is that they have a, a martial arts essence to them that the UFC seems to be missing. I like it. I like mm -hmm. them in their presentation. But their next show is in September. Now, granted, they're doing shows in Thailand in between. And those will also be available at some point in some of these outlets like, you know, Amazon Prime and things. So there is going to be there's more content there than just, you know, one show in three months. But the content, it's not there yet to compete with the UFC. And again, it, one, once you get to some of those cards in Asia, you're you're dealing with, you know, a, a list of, of, of 
smaller weight classes and also unpronounceable names, you know? So, you know, maybe they get into that Japanese habit of, you know, just make up a name for them. I think they do. Yeah, Stamp, to a certain extent, is a made-up name, you know, as a nickname. And Rotang, I, I think, is too. Maybe not. I But they... um. They, they got to pick some American names, I think, you know, to cross over and things. And I hate to say that, but I think, you know, that's what I, that's what an 800 man roster allows the UFC to do internationally. I think that, that will break down to regions also where there's going to be like a Russian UFC where some of those guys are going to be fighting under the UFC flag over there and making it to the big shows. And, you know, that's what the UFC is going to execute. And then they could do a Super Bowl in Moscow or, you know, I know politically that's the wrong, you know, example to give right now. But you get the picture is that they look at things at this point from above. Yeah, and, and like we were saying with Inouye, if, if you're not having your show in the U.S., it's pretty hard to capture the American audience. Yeah, and, and you know, Inouye would need the perfect, you know, would need... Shakur Stevenson to shrink, you know, 15 pounds or whatever is necessary to get, you know, somebody who's captured the American audience, maybe uh, Gervonta Davis or, you know, but I, it's the weight classes aren't right, you know? So, yeah, he that that's a problem is that he doesn't have an opponent. He was actually made to take out Chocolatito. The Japanese kind of bought him along. He's from a fighting family to do that number they never met that I know of. You know, in the early days when Chocolatito was at the top of his game, they didn't meet. Inouye seemed to skip a weight class, and he's done a lot of fighting in the lower weight classes, and I'm not sure where he's up to now. Well, he's got to fight Fulton, which is a fairly big fight. And what uh, what weight class? I don't know the weight class. I would assume it's the same weight class he always fights at. Okay. Well, which I think is 25, at, right? 126? Okay. Yeah. I think that's super bantam. Right. Yeah, super. So, um, yeah, you need an, you need an American opponent. You need to make a fight. And that's, you know, we circle around and stuff. That's the Nganu problem. Is Nganu is just not an instant, like, major fight against anybody. He needs the right opponent to make interest, and he needs the opponent to be a bigger name and, and draw than him. Or else it tops off. Now, what do you think about Sehudo not not winning this weekend? I picked him, you know, because I, I, you know, I love to hate him, I guess, you know, but um, it doesn't surprise me all the way. I've me I mentioned in another podcast I do on uh, odds for that that you know if you look at boxing, you and even MMA. You find serviceable 36, 38-year-olds at light heavyweight or heavyweight. You know, those guys fight until they're older. But to be sharp at the top of your game, after 35, in the little weight class is very, very, very rare. Uh, I can think of one boxer from Argentina, a guy named Narvaez, who had like a 40-2 and two record at 40 years old. And then even then, he fought a little, you know, a little bit longer and it kind of came, came apart. The little guys count on speed and precision more than strength and speed and precision are the first things that go and they go in ways that like for example canelo now this is the third fight in a row canelo hasn't scored a knockout where's his power did he lose it it's been a few years now mm -hmm. you know it, and that's just a, a, a shred of, of difference 
But at, at the smaller weight classes, I knew Segudo was going to be stronger, but he's going to be slower. And Aljamain is still pretty much uh, at the top of his game. He's an underrated athlete as well. Well, as always, you know, I think your insight on the one one FC stuff is really great, you know, and I think it's important for fans to get sources of education on some of these topics, you know, because it's important um, for people to know kind of where this is all coming from and, you know, some of the past experiences. So I really appreciate you taking time to kind of break that down. And as always, sure. I want to kind of give you a chance to talk about what you're up to with the MMA Collector MMA Museum kind of talk about well i've been working with you know a group of mma collectors led by ed tyson who's kind of like the main guy we've been doing a show on collectible mma memorabilia stuff from the old days and things um he's got quite a collection you know the hope is to have a museum or an online museum or something you know some way for it to be seen um and uh, that's what, you know, today's episode, we released, I think, episode 13 or 12 today. And uh, it's on one of uh, Daijutakase's Bushido trophies that he has. So just a, a wide variety of fun stuff that lets us talk about and remember the old days from a bunch of different perspectives. And uh, uh, we also attached to it an interview podcast called the MMA Museum, where uh, tomorrow, you know, maybe I'll have this out at the same time. Uh, we're debuting uh, Jorge Rivera, El Conquistador, uh, middleweight in the UFC, um, eight and seven record in the UFC before he retired. And I know him pretty well. We had an interview where, you know, um, he wanted to get some stuff out for the record. And, and uh, he was very honest and open, and I'm grateful for it. So we're, we're doing what we do. We try to document history, you know, the best way possible. All right, Miguel. Well, as always, it's great talking with you and uh, everyone that watches the podcast here and the episodes here. Appreciate the support. And as always, until uh, next episode, take care. Now, as always, I want to thank people for taking the time to listen to these shows. And uh, please check out my YouTube channel, which is Todd Atkins Show. Please subscribe to that if you want to get the newest episodes uh, kind of on time. I usually release these episodes, you know, here and there in the days after I do them. But if you want to see them, you know, that day, basically, you would uh, go to my YouTube channel and uh, just please subscribe. Uh, support me and uh, share this podcast if you like it. Share it with some other people. And uh, as always, I'm going to keep putting out more episodes for you. And uh, until the next time, appreciate it. Take care.